Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Immigration patterns alter our nation's racial composition. Medical science prolongs our lives, and we are becoming more educated than ever. These are among the significant demographic changes altering America over the past few decades, and that will continue to shape our society, our politics, and our institutions well into the future. How do we make sense of these changes and what they mean for our democracy? Ask an expert, of course. So I'm joined in the studio today by internationally regarded demographer William Fry. He's a senior fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings and a leading researcher on urban populations, immigration, race, political demographics, and the U.S. Census. He is author of Diversity Explosion, How New Racial Demographics Are Remaking America. That was the subject of an interview on this show in November 2014. I encourage you to check it out. And now he is a co-investigator and co-author in a multi-year, multi-organization project called States of Change that has released in each of the past three Februarys a report on demographic change and its effect on the electorate and politics. Stay tuned in this episode for another installment of our Unpacked series, featuring Jonathan Pollack on the threat from North Korea. And I'll note again that all of our shows now have transcripts attached. You can find these on our website, brookings.edu slash podcasts. And now on with the interview. Bill, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Oh, I'm pleased to be back, friend. The States of Change report is a very large, multi-organization, multi-author series of papers full of interesting data about demography and the electorate. So we're going to dive into that. Can you talk about kind of what the overall project is, who you've been collaborating with for these past few years? Sure. This is a collaborative project, as you said. It involves several research organizations. Initially, in addition to Brookings, the Center for American Progress and the American Enterprise Institute. I guess you could say center, left, right. I mean, the idea is to try to get organizations that are different parts of the spectrum. And more recently, we have the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is part of the organization. The idea, as you say, is to try to understand how these sweeping demographic changes are going to be affecting politics and political decisions. And the idea of having the the different research organizations involved from different ideological perspectives is that these reports can be put out there uh, to get discussion going. And in fact, each of the reports, as the three reports that were released, had with them events that had people from different parts of the ideological political spectrum to discuss what these mean. So this is meant to put stuff out there. My co-authors, and and I'm a co-author, we do this together. Rui Teixeira, I think you could say, is the ringleader of this. He's at the Center for American Progress, well-known political analyst, called me up four years ago and said, Bill, do you want to get involved in this thing? I just finished Diversity Explosion, my book uh, on race in America, and I said, yeah, this is the right time for it. And uh, I'd worked with Rui before on other projects, and so uh, we got together. And then a third collaborator, Robert Griffin, Rob Griffin, who's a political scientist, he's younger than Rui and I, which means he brings fresh ideas to the project. And just as important, he's just a whiz-bang data analyst. So all of the great data and all of the analysis that you see here is very much a part of what Rob does. But I think we really can say that we really work on this collaboratively. There are three reports. Each of us took the lead in one of those 
phase three. So uh, this is a project we hope will continue to produce good results for people. And I think, and I think we think, that this is kind of the gold standard for political demographics. There are a lot of smart people who do polling and very, very important results for that, for elections. But this deals with basic demography. What we've done in this project is we have projected for each of the 50 states plus D.C., the race and age compositions of those states going to the years 2060 for each off-year election and for each presidential election. And not only did we project those populations, we projected the eligible voter populations. And in the various different reports, we play kinds of tricks with these in ways that make things, I think, very useful for people who want to get their hands on this stuff. We like to say this is, as I say, the gold standard for, for this kind of analysis. I want to tell listeners that you can get your hands on this stuff by visiting the Brookings website, Brookings AEDU, where you will find those reports and links to all of the reports and to some of the events that occurred at the various organizations over the past few years. Bill, I want to focus real quick on the 2016 report, February 2016, America's Electoral Future, How Changing Demographics Could Impact Presidential Elections from 2016 to 2032. You and your co-author simulated results not only for the 2016 presidential elections, but for four presidential elections through the year 2032. How did these simulations square up with the results that we saw this past November? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, the good thing about it is we did so many simulations that at least some of them had to be right <laughs> when we came out. But just a word about what this is. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, we have uh, projected state, racial, and age distributions going forward for this report to 2032 so that we came up with what the electorate will look like for each one of those presidential elections by age and race. And then what the simulations do, they take that as a base, but on top of that, they make certain assumptions of how those different race and age groups in different states are going to vote. And so the most simple simulations we did for 2016 and 2020 and 2024, 2028 and 2032 is use the 2012 election results for all of those different subgroups in all of those different states and projected them ahead with a new demography, which is becoming much more racially diverse, older in some parts of the country. We build in migration patterns and all of that sort of thing. So that very simple analysis, as you might expect, would have given a democratic victory in 2016 because we put in those voting patterns. But as I say, since we did it with states, you can do the electoral college this way. And the one that's the most extreme gives a 10-point marginal increase to whites among whites for Republicans. In other words, it's a 10% increase over how whites voted for Obama in 2012 to what the Republican candidate would get in 2016, of course, Mr. Trump. And that is the one of the simulations that shows a Republican victory. Now, we weren't smart enough to put in and saying, here are five states that he's going to take to make the difference, which, of course, we know are a lot of these Midwestern states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Ohio. But those are states which were kind of critical in this particular simulation. I should say the only other simulation we did which showed a Republican victory is when we plugged in the 2004 results, the one that George W. Bush won into the 2016 demography. And then we see a slight Republican win in the Electoral College. But I think what's important about that 2016 simulation, especially the one that used the 2004 results, is that if you plug those same voting patterns, the 2004 voting patterns, into the 2020 election, the 2024 election, the 2028 election, after the 2020 election, those 2004 voting patterns, which elected George W. Bush, 
will start electing a Democrat. In other words, the demography is sweeping big enough to be able to make a Democratic win out of those same voting patterns. And even the very extreme, what I called a Trump dream scenario at the time, <laughs> it turned out to be true. If you plug those ahead into the future demography, when you get to 2032, that very extreme white vote for Republicans won't matter. In 2032, the demography will have changed so much that a Democrat would win with those same voting patterns. And that simulation was much more extreme than what actually happened in the 2016 election. But what did happen that's consistent with that simulation is that there was a big increase in white Republican vote, especially in a lot of these Rust Belt states, which is what pulled things out for Mr. Trump. That gets to what I think is one of the biggest stories in these data about demography is the, the declining percentage of Americans who are white, and yet they continue to vote overwhelmingly so for Republican candidates. And I think that gets us into your 2017 report, which is demographic change, representation gaps, and challenges to democracy. So is that one of these representation gaps where you've got a declining share of the electorate is white, and yet at least for the short term, at least in 2016, we still saw an outcome that we didn't always expect to happen. Yeah, I mean, in part, I guess you could say that, especially because we know that the Democrat Hillary Clinton won the popular vote and uh, Donald Trump won the Electoral College vote. And I think somebody's calculated something like 73,000 actual votes made the difference in those combined very close states. So this is kind of tipping things a little bit. There's geography involved with this as well, because the parts of the country that are growing most rapidly are gaining the most minorities. So a lot of the previous Republican parts of the country, especially in the Mountain West and the South, are getting more Hispanics and Asians, and they're becoming much more of a counterweight. Whereas in those Rust Belt states, you don't have as much diversity yet, and you still have a lot of older whites who are now uh, aging, and we know older people are more likely to vote than younger people, and I think that had something to do with it too. But to bring up your general result, yes, I mean, the country is changing in a more diverse way. Most of our simulations that we did in that 2016 report assumed strong Republican vote among whites in the United States. It's not as strong among younger whites as it is among older whites, and it's not as strong in some of those Midwestern states as it is in the Deep South and some additional other states around the country. So it's kind of varied over time. But, but nationally, actually, whites voted Republican in presidential elections in every election going back to 1968 for the country as a whole. So that's a fairly safe thing to think about going forward. And even though, if you remember, after the election in 2012, the Republican had this kind of uh, post-mortem, and they said, we have to reach out more to Hispanics. They didn't seem to reach out all that much more to Hispanics, and they were able to win because of these very strong strong older white support and rural white support in these northern states. So, you know, broadly speaking, yes, the more diverse we become, if past voting patterns continue, you know, the Democrats will have an advantage over time. But, you know, getting back to the newer report that we came out with, that assumes that a lot of these younger minorities are able to get into the voting booth and be represented on election day as well as they are represented in the total population. And that's not nearly the case up till now. And that is the heart of the, what you call the representation gap. So can you quickly unpack for us what is the representation gap? How is it manifested? Yeah, the representation gap looks at the percentage of a population group that's in the overall U.S. resident population and the percentage of that group which is showing up on election day. 
So to use a simple example, in a recent election around 2012, Hispanics made up about 17% of the U.S. population, but only 8% of the people who showed up on election day. Now, we can decompose that as we do in the report because, and in the other side of the coin, there are many more whites showing up in election day than there are in the overall population. I think something like 73% of the voters are white, but only about 63% of the total population is white. So there's like a 10-point gap between how many whites are voting and how many whites are in the population. So, I mean, that's kind of the representation gap we're coming up with. And, you know, if you just think about on the face of it, especially for Hispanics, to some degree for Asians among minority groups. Hispanics are a younger population, so they have many more people who are under 18 and are not eligible to vote. So they're counted in the overall population numbers, but they're not as well represented for the people over 18. Hispanics also, there are a fair number of them who are not citizens. And I'm not just talking about undocumented citizens, but there's a fairly large number of Hispanics who are here legally, have just not gotten their citizenship. And then on top of that, it's been shown that among the Hispanic population, fewer of them register to vote, and among those who do register to vote, fewer of those turn out to vote. So like it's a, it's a I guess, a quadruple whammy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you could say. There's an age effect, there's an eligibility effect, there's a registration effect, and then there's a turnout effect. And all of those things work to the underrepresentation of a group like Hispanics. In fact, your data show that we are at what you call peak levels of both overrepresentation and underrepresentation when it comes to whites and Hispanics at a level not seen for decades. Yes, that's right. And part of the reason is demographic because over the last 20, 25 years, we've had big immigration to the U.S. of Hispanics. Now, not all Hispanics are immigrants anymore. Most Hispanics, in fact, are U.S.-born residents. But as a result of that immigration flow, you know, a lot of those people are tend to be younger. And I remember I talked about that age effect. So since there's a younger age distribution among Hispanics and there is among the general population, proportionately more of them are under age 18. Also, there's a lag in them getting citizenship, which I talked about also. Now, as more of them get born in the U.S. over time, as they age in our population, that demographic impact is not going to be as strong in the future. But since 1980, up until the current time, that's helped to widen that representation gap because of uh, the youthfulness and the fact not as many of them are citizens, as is the case for the overall population and especially the white population. So as that racial gap or the eligibility gap closes between Hispanics and whites because more and more Hispanics will be eligible to vote because more of them will be citizens, you you say that won't close the representation gap because registration and turnout gaps amongst Hispanics could remain. Yes, that's the biggest issue going forward in closing the representation gap between Hispanics and to some degree Asians going forward. As many of them become more, have the age distribution more like the U.S. population, many more of them become citizens, that piece of the representation gap won't be as big anymore. But they still, at least today, are not turning out as much to vote or they're not registering to vote nearly to the extent as either the white or the black population is in the United States. And so that's the challenge going forward. I mean, what we've done in this report is we projected ahead what those representation gaps would look like Building in the demography with our sophisticated demography, we've done it for all the states and for the country. And what happens as more of these populations become older, as more of them, and we've made some assumptions about citizenship going over time and different simulations of it, but all of that will help to close the representation gap. But will still remain is 
getting people to come out to vote and getting people to come out to register. And there, I think, is the utility of some of our simulations because it shows the challenges that we face and what would happen actually if we closed that gap in terms of having Hispanics go out and turn out to vote the same as the general population or is and also register to vote the same as the general population. That, too, doesn't close it entirely over time, but it does a lot. And so that's the challenge going forward. Now that we have a country that's very diverse, many more Hispanics are citizens. They're becoming age 18. Moving forward, that's where we have to push in terms of closing that representation gap. Mobilization, getting people registered. Those are the kinds of things that are important going forward. I'll take you back to my interview with Bill Fry in a minute, but first, here's Jonathan Pollack, who says that while North Korea doesn't pose a direct threat to the United States, it does present a regional threat to the Korean Peninsula and Japan. I'm Jonathan Pollack, and I'm a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Program. North Korea does not pose, at this point, a direct threat to the United States. It does, however, pose a threat to those Americans, including military personnel, business people, students, visitors who are in South Korea. The real threat that North Korea poses at present is a regional threat, or maybe you could say a peninsular threat. Either way, the fact that in very one very concentrated bit of geography, it is one of the most heavily armed locations on Earth. The usual response, of course, has been uh, a military response uh, in the sense that you prepare for war, you seek to do whatever you can to deter renewed military conflict, and if it should fail, to be able to defend against the results of that attack. And it's not a perfect solution by any means. It obviously requires the sustainment of very high levels of military capability and involvement. Uh, but I would note that it has more or less worked. It's less than satisfactory. It puts the region under a situation of, if you will, open-ended tension and uncertainty. And more to the point, this is in one of the most critical locations for the global economy. Uh, Korea, South Korea, now the 11th or 12th biggest economy in the world, critical to global supply chains. Japan, obviously, the third biggest economy in the world, and China, the second biggest economy in the world. All very concentrated in this one very small piece of territory. And we need to remind ourselves that because very, very often the conflicts the United States finds itself involved in are in locations that are relatively remote. This is not. Some people, for example, have noted that uh, President Trump seemed emboldened because he dropped cruise missiles on Syria uh, and an enormous bomb was dropped on Afghanistan. But Korea is not Syria and Korea is not Afghanistan. The consequences of a war here would be devastating and potentially global in their reach. What drives policy now is a belief, it's not yet materialized quite this way, but a fear that North Korea's ultimate intention is to develop and operationalize a long-range nuclear-armed ballistic missile that would be able to reach American territory. And what President Trump has said, and many others have said, is this is fundamentally unacceptable to the United States. 
So if he means what he says, he's not ruling out the most extreme of actions at some future point directed against North Korea. North Korea is the only state in the world uh, to have tested nuclear weapons in the 21st century. They've done this five times. In the last 16 months alone, they've conducted approximately 30 ballistic missile tests of different shapes and sizes. So they're clearly pressing ahead in ways that creates enormous uh, danger. What Trump is arguing is that a, a kind of a, what I'll call a, a high-low mix here is what is really required. That is, at the high end, the U.S. would put increased military pressure against North Korea to inhibit its actions. But at the same time, China would significantly increase its economic pressure because China's role in the North Korean economy is critical. China would be key here, and he, Trump is trying to argue that if China will step up to the plate, the combination of the military pressure and the economic pressure uh, will ultimately constrict what North Korea is able to do. My biggest concern is not war by design war initiated in a conscious way, either by North Korea or by the United States. If, for example, we saw the, uh, the fueling of a, of a long-range uh, missile, uh, it would be more how the talk and the preparations of all the key actors here result in an inadvertent conflict. There are a lot of countries right now uh, that are talking about preemption. Preemption is a very, very dangerous word in a military context. Kim, on that basis, might decide he has nothing to lose, uh, independent of the consequences. He might feel that others are going to act first if he doesn't act first. Over the longer run, I think that the, the bigger threat to North Korea is not American missiles. It's ideas, it's information. It's access to the outside world that would put at risk the ability of a family-run dynasty to maintain its totalitarian rule uh, over this one small but very dangerous state. Unpacked is a video series that you can find on our website at brookingsedu slash unpacked. And now back to my conversation with Bill Fry. Let's talk for a minute about representation gaps in the black American community. You've written that white overrepresentation has been one of the defining features of American politics over the past several decades. But in 2008 and 2012 elections, you saw exceptions to that when you looked at black American voters. Yes, those two elections showed big spurts in the turnout rates of African Americans, not coincidentally because we had an African American presidential candidate. And, you know, for the first time in 2012, there was a higher turnout rate for blacks than there were for whites ever since statistics were collected. And that went a long way towards closing the representation gap. Now, overall, the black representation gap is not as big as it is for Hispanics or Asians, simply because the age distribution is closer to the white age distribution than is the case for those other newer minorities. And of course, you know, a very high rate of, of citizenship among African Americans. So it's really there, the turnout and the registration that was causing whatever gap there was there before. But with that big turnout occurring in these most recent elections, that's made that gap actually a 
a positive gap in some places and in some states. You also have some very striking findings about the gaps and how they differ between presidential and midterm elections and the turnout gaps amongst the four racial groups, whites, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians. Doesn't seem to be as high for presidential elections, but for whites and Hispanics in midterm elections, the opposite moving trends and the representation gaps are very remarkable. Yes, and I think here we're talking about turnout on election day. I mean, there, there is those other underlying factors which have something to do with the representation gaps, but there, the demographic factor being over age 18 and being a citizen, that's the same for presidential elections or if they are for midterm elections. But, but And even registering to vote is that not that big of a difference. But actual turnout among those people who are registered, is not nearly as big in the midterm elections for Hispanics. And therefore, they're kind of complementary, that when the Hispanic population has a big downtick in representation, then the larger white population has an uptick because they're kind of, you know, complementary to each other. So, but there is, of course, higher, often higher turnout of whites in those midterm elections as well. So there is an area where I think, you know, there's a long way to go in terms of getting more mobilization during those midterm elections because it, it just hits you in the face, as you say, when you look at these numbers, a very big difference between the presidential elections and the midterm elections. It really hits you in the face when you look at these charts that represent the numbers. I just encourage listeners to go and download these papers and just study these amazing charts that you have throughout all these papers. They really tell an amazing story. Another very important aspect of this research is that you all broke it down by states, by regions, which, of course, provide the all-important electoral college votes in the presidential election. So looking at, say, the white representation gaps at the state level, what did you find? Well, those representation gaps vary by state. And it also, if you look at it initially and playing it over time, you can see how it's impacted by the changing racial and ethnic demography of the country over time. So if you go back to 1980, there are only a few states that have high white representation gaps. California, Texas, Arizona lead them, but actually most states have representation gaps that are lower than the nation as a whole, that they're kind of clustered in these states that back then were the states with a high percentage of new minorities, as I like to call them, Hispanics, Asians, and those kinds of groups. But as we move forward to 2016, when the national representation gap gets higher for whites, it goes from seven in 1980 up to 10 in 2016, there are many more states that have higher representation gaps than there were back in 1980. And they move more toward the middle part of the country. In 2016, 21 states had at least a national representation gap or higher, and 39 states increased their white representation gap between 1980 and 1916. And that, again, has to do with the movement of Hispanics moving into the Mountain West and other parts of the South away from these kind of melting pots they began in. Sort of it moves that process along. Remember when we looked at the nation as a whole, we see in the beginning as, an, as the Hispanic population moves into the country over the last couple of decades, it increases the youth of that Hispanic population. Not as many of them are citizens. Well, that whole process now moves in more into the middle of the country as we see the dispersion of Hispanics going to other states and also with Asians as well. So in those other states those that earlier had large Hispanic and immigrant populations, California, Texas, Arizona, is that representation gap then diminishing as it increases in places like, I'm going to guess, Colorado. 
Yes. In fact, we have the temerity to actually project this to the year 2060. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure too many of us are going to around to check that they reside. But if you follow this pattern, you say when you get to that year, and if those migration patterns play out the way that we have projected them, the states of Utah, Wyoming, and Kansas will have the highest white representation gaps as that dispersion moves into those states. And the states of California, Texas, and Arizona will still have some white representation gap. They have declined over time, you know. And I think what that tells us is that as we're thinking about how to handle dealing with this representation gap in terms of mobilization and turnout and get out the vote and all of this, in those states that have already peaked in terms of their white representation, and now as those younger people are becoming more voting age, they're the challenges to make sure they're being turned out to vote. Whereas in the other parts of the country where they're just moving in, it'll be a longer process until that group gets into those voting ages. I want to quote to you a fairly long passage at the end of the February 2016 report. And again, that was the one, how changing demographics could impact presidential elections from 2016 to 2032. So let me uh, just quote this. I think it's fascinating. I'm going to ask you to discuss it. Quote, while shifting demographics favor Democrats when all else is held equal, the party has significant vulnerability among aging white voters who will remain quite important in slow-growing Midwestern and Rust Belt swing states. Democrats will therefore have to think hard about how to balance appeals to their growing and younger minority base with outreach to older white voters, particularly in middle America. That was written before the election. <laughs> and, uh, we did show that there was a pathway for uh, back when nobody was really predicting this to happen or very few people were predicting to have a pathway for a Republican win with those older white states if they voted strongly for Republicans. You know, both parties have to deal with this changing demography. For the Democrats, they were sort of in the cusp of putting up a new map in the United States with Barack Obama. From several elections prior to 2008, they were losing all of the South. They were losing all of the Mountain West, and their gains were clustered either in the Midwest or in highly urbanized states on the coasts. But when Barack Obama came along, not only was his attraction, I think, as the first racial minority candidate, but also in line with the changing demography of the country. As more Hispanics moved to those states that were largely Republican, as more blacks moved back to the South, which is another part of the changing demography that's going on. And he was able to capitalize that to pick out some southern states in 2008, North Carolina, Virginia, Florida, and in the West, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, and at the same time hold on to those older Midwest states. Hillary Clinton comes along and she kind of just misses on both. Okay. <laughs> she thought she of the blue wall in the Midwest. Yeah, she, she doesn't get enough of those. You know, she, she gets some of them. She gets some of the Western ones. She gets Colorado and Nevada and, and New Mexico, but she doesn't get Florida and North Carolina, which are important. And more importantly, she lost that cluster of Midwestern states, which may not be as much of the future of the Democratic Party as these growing states in the South and the West. But certainly they need to pay attention to those states because they're going to be important for, as we can see, in an election as we just saw. But Republicans have to be aware of this, too. I don't think that postmortem after the 2012 election was wrong. I think that they do need to reach out to the growing Hispanic populations, especially into a lot of those states, as I said, the southern states, which, which they were able to take this time. But, but North Carolina was very close. Florida was very close. And that's going to be changing demographically. 
So they're also going to have to maybe look at the changing demography, what's going on. I have always written about something called a cultural generation gap. This is a gap where the older white population has some problems with the changing demography, and they don't like to see the, uh, the immigration that we have. Uh, they're concerned about what's happening to the changing nature of the country, and they like to grasp onto the past in a way where the younger population, they want to do things very differently. And I think the party that can reach both parts of that cultural generation gap and find some common ground is going to be the one that's going to be successful in the future. Setting aside these very particular partisan approaches to the demographic problem, you talk in the report about challenges to democracy. So it's beyond just this partisan question. What are the challenges to democracy in the representation gaps that you study? We've said a few of them in the report. I think this is a topic for a whole book, <laughs> given what's going on. And those people who are really interested in this, it is on the websites that talk about our event that we had in February, where several people talked about this and came up with some ideas about what we need to do. But certainly, uh, the whole idea where the country is changing very rapidly, more rapidly than I think a lot of the institutional apparatuses know, what local communities know that it's really very important that people have access to the ballot box. It's really important that they understand that they need to register to vote. And it's important for not only the parties or even the state and federal governments to make this more accessible, but local communities, those communities themselves, and then people who are really interested in making sure people's voices matter. Because we're having a demographic change that we have not seen before because we're just reaching that cusp where all of these younger people are moving into voting age and they're being countered by this kind of older population, you know, which is set in its ways, at least in terms of past voting patterns. And I think everyone needs to have a voice if we're going to come up with good policies to, you know, make sure everybody has something uh, they get out of the government going forward. And so where do you and your colleagues take this research next? Well, we have lots of plans. We're still still trying to diagnose them. I think one area we're going to try to do is get down to the more local level. We've dealt with states, and uh, we've been talking about doing something, uh, you know, since rural-urban was such a big deal in this last election, we might be doing a little more on that, in that scale. And also maybe do a little bit more with understanding how different kind of mobilization patterns may impact turnout and registration if we can work with partners who can help us with that. Well, Bill, I want to thank you once again for sharing your time and your expertise today. Very much enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about William Fry and download the latest States of Change report and all the other reports through our website at brookings.edu. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air, and I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribereto, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. And design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. Our intern this semester was Kelly Russo. And I want to say thank you, Kelly, for doing such great work for this and all the shows on the Brookings Podcast Network. When you get a chance, send us an Ask an Expert question. And finally, thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. 
visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.